You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Group B strep is a common bacterium carried by approximately one in every four adults, usually unknowingly and without symptoms. Normally harmless to adults, it's estimated about one pregnant woman in five in the UK carries Group B strep, in many instances without knowing it. Most pregnant women who carry the bacteria have healthy babies. However, there's a small risk that Group B strep can pass to the baby during childbirth, with potentially devastating consequences. Jane Plum is CEO of the charity Group B Strep Support. The most common infections it causes are sepsis, pneumonia and meningitis, each of which can be life-threatening in a newborn baby. And the important thing to know about Group B strep is that most Group B strep infections in newborn babies can be prevented. Jane, I understand there are two forms of Group B strep infections. Late onset develops seven or more days after delivery and isn't normally associated with pregnancy. With this report, we're focusing on early onset, that is. Most babies who develop early onset Group B strep infection show symptoms within the first 12 hours of life. So it's very likely that infections will be picked up while the baby is still in hospital. Having said that, the most common symptoms of an early onset Group B strep infection is the baby making a grunting sound, the baby not feeding well, the baby being abnormally drowsy, lethargic, sometimes they're irritable, and sometimes their temperature is either high or low. Those are the most common signs. If you're pregnant and identified as being a carrier of Group B strep, I understand that a course of intravenous antibiotics administered during labour drastically reduces the likelihood of baby developing early onset Group B strep infections. Where is our health service at in terms of screening pregnant women for Group B strep? In the UK, the NHS doesn't routinely test women for Group B strep carriage. Instead of screening, uses what they call a risk-based strategy, whereby they look for certain characteristics during pregnancy labour and delivery and the risk factors that they use is if mum has previously had a baby with a group B strep infection, if group B strep has been detected in any way from mum during the current pregnancies or if she has a fever in labour or other signs of a chorioamnionitis infection during labour. I know a key thrust of your awareness work is to chip away at the 50% of pregnant women who your research suggests aren't aware of Group B strep. If you are pregnant and want to get tested, what in your organisation's experience will be the response from the health service? The response within the NHS will, I'm afraid, vary. There are some hospitals that will offer tests for Group B strep, particularly when a woman asks to be tested, but there are also maternity units that won't. I understand it's also important to know the type of Group B strep test that a pregnant woman might be offered. The gold standard method for detecting Group B strep carriage that is used in lots of developed countries, unfortunately at present isn't available in most NHS trusts. The standard non-specific tests for Group B strep, whilst they are hugely accurate when they find Group B strep, they will miss up to 40% of women who are carrying Group B strep. If you're pregnant and you want to be tested and you want to know that you're accessing the gold standard ECM test, 
list for Group B strap carriage, then we list on our website the organisations that we know follow Public Health England's UK standard for testing for Group B strap. So if you want to be tested and know that you're accessing the gold standard test, then visit the website or contact us and we can put you in touch with organisations that offer that gold standard test. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Extreme shyness or social phobia, experts tell us, is damaging to a sufferer's well-being and has been associated with depression and even attempted suicide. Maureen Rice is former editor of Psychologies magazine. Shyness is a spectrum and I think a lot of us can relate to moments of shyness or moderate shyness. We meet a new group of people, we feel a bit awkward, it's a bit difficult till we get to know them. But for some people, about 15% of us have an incredible sensitivity to those situations and it's actually quite disabling for them. They dread it. It's physically and emotionally painful for them to be in those situations. So Maureen, where does social anxiety come from? Maybe up to 30% of us are born with a very highly sensitive nature. About half go on to develop this very extreme shyness and that's all related to upbringing and early life experience. If you grow up in a family where people, they don't like to make phone calls to people they don't know or figures in authority or they make a social gaffe, they're actually mortified by it. They don't see the funny side. They're actually horrified by it. You grow up in that environment, that becomes normal. We do transmit these things to our children. But it's not just parents. You know, If you're bullied at school, you have very unfortunate experiences of being an outsider in your early life, that can definitely feed into this kind of very negative social anxiety behaviour. I understand that sufferers commonly adopt avoidance or safety behaviours to cope with or get out of situations they dread. Why is this counterproductive? Because they don't address the underlying causes of social anxiety. All they do is block it out. Of course, that makes the whole cycle worse. You've got to get to grips with what makes you shy, what your shyness triggers are, what those negative thoughts, those automatic negative thoughts in your head are, which trap you in this kind of behaviour. Finally, Maureen, I know for those of us gripped by social phobia or extreme shyness, cognitive behavioural therapists can be hugely helpful, but it's not always easy to gain access to these wonderful professionals. What tips can you provide on self help measures break the grip in your head that says you can't have a conversation with someone you don't know. Practice first in an atmosphere that's safe. Say you set yourself a little task like I'm going to have a five minute conversation with a stranger. Have it with a child. Another thing a lot of us are afraid of, we say hello to somebody, then we fall into a black hole conversationally. Have some things ready to say. Read the paper, think of something you want to talk about and prepare. Play a game where you think that other person is shyer than I am and I have to help them feel comfortable. When you're focusing on them, you're actually not listening to those negative voices in your own head. Putting you in the picture. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. When it comes to looking after our mouths, truth be told, we could be an awful lot better. Very few of us brush our teeth for the recommended two minutes twice a day. Too many of us don't go to the dentist for regular checkups, and only when we absolutely have to. It therefore may not be too surprising to learn that one in four of us has never heard of mouth cancer, with an equal number confused about what may cause it. Dr Nigel Carter is from the Oral Health Foundation. The sad fact is survival rates haven't improved for mouth cancer and now we're seeing more people dying than cervical cancer and testicular cancer combined. So Nigel, what are the risk factors? Largely smoking but also tobacco chewing, that's the real risk factor, followed by alcohol and actually smoking and excess alcohol can lead to an up to 30 times increased risk of developing mouth cancer. Which groups of people are at particular risk? 
probably a ratio of two to one men to women. Now, that's actually changing. If we'd been talking 20, 30 years ago, we'd have been talking at least three times as many men getting it. And we think that's due to changes in social habits. But there's an increasing number, particularly in young people, and when I say young, I'm really talking the under 40s there, present with no apparent risk factor at all. And we're trying to drill down and find out what's causing that. I know your colleagues up and down the country check for mouth cancer as part of their routine dental examination. It's a disease where early diagnosis really does make for the best prognosis. If someone is listening to this report, hasn't been to the dentist for a while, but worried something might be wrong, what are the telltale signs to look out for? Any unusual changes in your mouth, any unusual white spots, red spots, any ulcers that don't heal over a period of around three weeks, unusual lumps in the head and neck area, get along to your dentist or doctor, have it checked out. In all probability, no problem, but far better safe than sorry. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. According to the Mental Health Foundation, good sleep is a fundamental building block for young people's mental and physical health. Yet research has shown that many of our young people are struggling with their sleep. Vicky Dawson is CEO of the Sleep Charity. There's a worryingly high number of teenagers who aren't getting enough sleep across the country. And then it leads to all kinds of issues, such as mental health issues, but issues around education as well. I think one of the major problems is the fact that their circadian rhythms go through a change during puberty. So actually, they tend not to release the sleep hormone melatonin until later at night time. So they're genuinely not tired. And then, of course, what happens is they end up staying awake and they struggle then to wake up in time for school. What we found as well is quite often they come home from school, the house might be quiet, they may have a nap and that can of course increase the difficulty to fall asleep at night time because they have lowered their sleep drive and therefore they are not tired once again. And of course at weekends they may have lengthy lie-ins to try to catch up on the sleep that they've missed and then the sleep patterns are just all over the place. Vicky, to help teenagers address the issue, you recruited an advisory panel of young people to guide you in the right direction. How did that work out? Well, our advisory boards were incredible and they gave us lots of really useful input. And what they were asking for was evidence-based information. They wanted to know what was accurate because there's so much information out there about sleep and some of it perhaps isn't the best information. They wanted to know the science behind it because if you can understand about sleep and sleep cycles, you can then start to understand why the strategies that are suggested are so important. Is sleep education on the national curriculum? It has crept onto the PHSE curriculum in September, but the information that I have seen is that it is just a small part of that, and I'm very unclear about what sort of training there has been to support the introduction of sleep education in schools. You know, it really needs to be a key part of the national curriculum, and we need to be not just teaching youngsters about sleep, we need to be teaching the whole of society about sleep because it's something that most people don't know a great deal about. So how much sleep should teenagers be getting? Well the thing about sleep is it is all individual so nobody's sleep needs are exactly the same. Sometimes if we get fixated on looking at the number of hours sleep that can cause stress. It's actually thinking about the way that we operate during the daytime. Do we feel well rested? Is it easy to wake up in the morning? And it's sort of not a one-size-fits-all with sleep. It's very, very individual.
I know your focus this week is on sleep deprivation and its impact on young people's mental health, but getting a good night's rest has other health impacts, doesn't it? Yeah, it has all kinds of impacts. There is research out there that links sleep deprivation with obesity. It also impacts on things like growth hormones being released. And when you look at the research around sleep deprivation, it is quite a frightening thing to see how wide-reaching the impact can be. At the sleep charity, we prefer to look at the positives and look at the benefits that sleep can give us. Um, You know, there's so many benefits to getting a good night's sleep, like improved mental health, like improved immune systems, improved concentration, emotional regulation, the list just goes on. In terms of strategies for teenagers to assist them, what free resources are you making available? We have just published our e-learning book online, which is on our website. And this provides young people with an education about sleep, but also some tips about things that can help. So things like when it's dark, you produce a hormone called melatonin, and this helps you to fall asleep. So it's really important to try to dim the lights in that hour before bedtime to support the production of melatonin. It can also be useful to limit screen time as well, because... You know, there's some research that suggests it may interfere with the body's natural production of melatonin. Screens are also very stimulating and certainly there can be a fear of missing out for young people and needing to be connected 24-7 to the peer group as well, which can be highly disruptive for sleep. And finally, Vicky, what about tips for parents? Again, it's about education. So recognising that young people aren't being lazy. This is biological changes that they are going through. And we are developing working schools whereby we have sleep champions. And our vision is we will have a sleep champion in every school across the country who can educate young people about sleep, but parents as well. What we found is that when we work on a one-to-one basis, with young people to improve their sleep, the results are far more significant when they've got parental support. To access the resources highlighted in this report, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.